You are listening to the Engineering Ignition podcast, your weekly insights into the engineering sector. Sponsored by Bonfire Recruitment, helping engineering leaders across the UK to attract the best talent for their engineering company. Ignite your business or career today by visiting www.bonfireengineering.com. Here's your host, Scott Buchanan. Welcome to this week's Engineering Ignition podcast with myself, Scott Buchanan, Recruitment Director here at Bonfire Engineering. Thanks for tuning in and I do hope you get to enjoy the show. This week, I'm delighted to be joined by Stephen Jeremy, the Executive Chairman of WaveHub Limited. Now, Stephen is a fellow at the Nautical Institute and also at the Institute of Marine Engineering, Science and Technology. He's a passionate offshore renewable energy professional and chartered marine renewables technologist with wide-ranging operational and technical leadership experience. In addition to being chairman at WaveHub, Stephen is a non-exec director for Lead for Energy and Marine at Cornwall, Isle of Scilly, local enterprise partnership, and is a director of Tide Mills Limited, which is a tidal energy project development company focusing on the delivery of tidal range. <clears throat> Stephen has an incredible background with a wealth of over 30 years of offshore experience, which includes sea command, naval aviation, ships diving, fishing protection, oil and gas security, and of course, offshore renewable energy. <clears throat> Steve, I hope I've done you justice this morning. I'm delighted to welcome you to the show. How is the second busiest man in the UK doing today? <laughs> That's fine. It's a very kind introduction, Scott. Yeah, we're doing fine. It's been busy, and um, I'm conscious that all that's going on is going on against a COVID-19 background. But we're fortunate enough to be in an industry which is moving at speed and continues to move in a positive direction. I think the last great frontier for renewable energy is offshore. Uh, and uh, we've done well so far with offshore wind, uh, where I've been sort of working amongst other places for the last 10 years. Uh, but the exciting one for us at the moment is floating offshore. Um, wave and tidal will also be there. Tidal stream is coming soon, wave after that. Uh, but the big one for us at the moment is floating offshore wind. Which is, um, well, exactly where we were leading. Now, uh, clearly you've seen plenty of development in this area over recent years. And um, Are you able to give, I guess, a quick snapshot for our listeners who may not be fully up to speed in how dynamic this area of renewable energy has become? Yeah, I think um, uh, the, 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 we, we started about sort of the industry was starting about 15 or 20 years ago, really, I suppose. And um, the, uh, as we started to move offshore, the first big uh, rush was into uh, offshore wind. Um, it's worth bearing in mind offshore wind is, on, is in relatively shallow water, so less than 40 metres. Uh, but we were also looking in those times at wave energy and tidal energy. Uh, wave energy has been slow. It's a very difficult sector to, to operate in. Tidal energy a bit better. Tidal, on, tidal energy is on the cusp of commercialization. Uh, but the speed with which fixed and conventional offshore wind has moved has been extraordinary. And we're now in a situation where uh, an industry which required money to support it some time ago is bidding in at some of the cheapest um, subsidy-free rates um, of any of the renewable energy resources. Super. So, so what is floating offshore wind, Steve? Yeah, well, there are two, if you think of offshore wind, and people will have images in their mind of those huge structures uh, offshore, they're all uh, fixed to the seafloor. So 
So uh, they use uh, what are, for example, what we call jackets or monopiles or gravity-based foundations, all of which are fixed to the seafloor. Uh, now, as the uh, water gets deeper, so we go beyond 40 meters, then the cost of fixing to the seafloor becomes prohibitive. So in those circumstances, that what, what we're doing is moving to platforms which are floating platforms. So they're like, uh, this is uh, something which has been done in the oil and gas industry and in other, other sectors. But essentially, it's taking a conventional wind turbine, offshore turbine, and putting it on a floating platform rather than fixing it to the seashore. So, for example, if you're looking at, a um, let's say, a, a, an 8-megawatt turbine, you'd have, you'd have a, a, a structure underneath this, either a barge or a semi-submersible and probably in the order of 10,000 tons. I'm, I'm making these figures up, um, mm -hmm. but it, that sort of structure. So these are big things. So imagine that if we were doing a eight, eight megawatt uh, turbine uh, in a conventional way, it would be fixed to the seafloor in a floating way. It'll be on a very large floating platform and it'll be a height of about the same height in total as the Eiffel Tower. Wow. Incredible. So that's some serious engineering that's been going on in the background then, I guess, and challenges, of course. And I mean, what, what, what are, are the main challenges of this? And what is the main challenges of offshore wind? Um, the main challenges of offshore wind and, and floating offshore wind are different. Um, where, where we are in floating offshore wind is that the industry has moved at speed and it's now essentially a commercial industry which is running uh, in full commercial terms. So where what the main challenges are there really are, are cost reduction uh, and uh, doing it more efficiently. We pretty much know how to do everything, but there's lots of scope for refinement. Um, floating offshore wind is different because uh, we've never done a large installation of a large floating offshore wind array. Imagine a situation, a 500 megawatt array, which might be 50 turbines. Uh, to put that in the water, imagine um, constructing... 50 um, structures the same size as a destroyer uh, below the water and uh, the same height as the Eiffel Tower above the water. And imagine putting those into an array offshoring challenging situations to the west of UK um, over, say, one season or two seasons. Uh, there will be somewhere between 150 to 300 anchors uh, to be put in the water and the same amounts of moorings and cabling. Um, so you, you can imagine that's a big industrial uh, process and not been done yet, uh, but I would like to think we'll be the first people in the world to do it in the UK. That, that is incredible and what, what pioneering um, scenario that, that actually is as well and, and hopefully the, your anchor will hold as well. Um, I mean, is, is there, I mean, are we, the technology, I guess, so I guess the onshore technology, you know, that some of that will have been moved over, I guess. But how, how are we getting on developing, embracing the new technologies for offshore wind? I mean, is that there happening and, and good to run? Or is, is, I guess, regulation and, I guess, maybe not the investment required for it to, to actually happen? Um, the, the, for, uh, if we can distinguish between conventional offshore wind um, and floating offshore Sorry, wind. yes, OK. Uh, yeah, con conventional offshore wind has drawn heavily from... Um, from onshore wind, but but actually the significant difference, and I think it's fair to say it's moved well beyond onshore wind, is just scale. So you can do big things offshore which you can't do onshore. So you can, um, you know, when we're putting in um, 
uh, things offshore. We can use big cranes and, and go offshore on, on dynamic positioning vessels and jack up barges and do large, large works offshore, which you couldn't do in the same scale onshore. And if you think about it, that all of the biggest structures in the world, other than built uh, structures such as, uh, as skyscrapers, all of the biggest structures are actually offshore. And it's just easier because, of course, if you build something um, that you can float, you can pretty much move it anywhere. Where imagine trying to that, to build something like an oil rig and uh, uh, onshore is much much bigger enterprise. So, so generally speaking, it's easier to do things at scale offshore than onshore. Okay, so that that leads into, I guess, where where does it stop then? Of course, you know. Yeah. The... Well, the, 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 I mean the. the um, the thing about conventional offshore wind is that, is that I think we're getting close to limits and it's to do with the size of the foundations because the foundations get to a certain scale where it becomes more and more difficult to justify the foundation cost. Um, that's not um, true, we don't think, with floating offshore wind platforms. Uh, the other thing is that each of those conventional offshore wind foundations on the seafloor is bespoke. So it's bespoke because each each part of the seafloor is different. So it has different, what we call geotechnical conditions. And those geotechnical conditions mean that we have to fine tune each of those foundations for its specific location. Uh, that's not the case uh, with a floating platform. Because a floating platform, the sea is the sea is the sea. Uh, and once you've built one, you can mass produce them. So for that reason, uh, it's, it's uh, probably a, um, an approach which is going to be easier to commercialise, albeit we've got a long way to do that. So that's one of the big advantages of floating offshore. Um, the other is that we can go into the windier places. So the windier places means that there's higher uh, wind speeds, which means there's more energy out there, which means that um, ultimately um, th th there's more yield from the projects. We use um, a thing called the capacity factor or the load factor, which is to, is to work out um, the amount of energy that a, that a project will 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 produce, and that factor is between thirty and forty percent for a conventional offshore wind uh, farm. Uh, for the first um, farm up in Scotland, the High Wind project, which is the first floating offshore wind array, it's up at fifty eight percent. So that's a big increase for us, and it means that uh, we should be able to drive costs down more quickly as a consequence. Excellent, and, and that I'm sure in the commercial world will appreciate that as well. Um, and I guess even from a pure engineering standpoint, being able to, I'm going to use the word clone, but copy, you know, the, the scenario will be easier rather having to do it on a bespoke basis and um, attaching to the sea floor. Incredible. Brilliant. Steve, Steve, just very quickly, I mean, are, are you able to give, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, our audience a snippet of your background, I guess, and an overview of what the journey looks like in becoming maybe the key focal point in the development of floating offshore wind in recent times, certainly from a UK standpoint? How, how do you become, how do we arrive at this position? But um, in terms of my um, my career background, yes, so, I guess, yeah, yeah, yeah sure, sure. I, um, I I started off life as a naval officer, and um, I'd had a degree in uh, applied mathematics and physical oceanography. Um, then did a lot of. Uh, I wasn't an engineer; I was a deck officer, a master mariner. Uh, but we're working hand in glove with engineering, so you have a very strong engineering background. And um, I I was at sea, uh, commanded ships. Anyway, when I left the navy. Um, I 
I um, got into tidal energy and that took me uh, further afield and in, into um, tidal energy, wave energy and offshore wind energy. I worked initially for a company called Mojo Maritime, which is a Cornwall-based company, but did lots of work, um, including up in Scotland. Uh, we put in all of the um, turbines for the Majem project, which is the tidal stream project up in the, um, the, the um, south of the Orkneys. Yeah, and uh, we were then taken over by James Fisher, which is a big uh, northeastern-based company, but with uh, worldwide presence. It's probably the biggest, or certainly one of the biggest, uh, offshore companies in the offshore renewables sector in Britain. Uh, although there are lots of other big European companies. Um, and uh, shortly after that, I was asked to come to Wave Hub, which is where I'm now, uh, where the council who own us were wanting to put us into a um, into a, onto a more commercial basis with people uh, from the sector. So that's my background. I, my specialist areas are resource analysis and offshore operations, but this is a general leadership role, general commercial and executive leadership role, um, and seeking to, to develop a big opportunity um, down in the Southwest. Yeah, super. And I, to be fair, the, the little that I've been learning about you over the course, Steve, you, you, because of the variety of exposure you've got over your career, puts you in a, a, the, you know, a perfect place to develop doing what you're doing. Um, so, I mean, why are we getting excited about um, offshore wind energy? Why are we getting excited? I think with um, that's two or three reasons. I mean, firstly, um, yeah, we're in a, um, uh, a CO2 reduction world where we're talking about climate change. Uh, I also know from my own background, my own analysis, that um, you know, oil is going to run out. You know, we know where, how, where things stand in the North Sea and that, that actually um, you know, the oil reserves are reducing. That's the same the world over, so we'll need energy sources uh, as a result. Um, the um, last big frontier, I think, for um, renewable energy is offshore. Uh, and it's an exciting frontier because there's lots of energy out there. Um, to give you a sense of this, so we're, we're, um, we've established a conventional offshore wind industry. Uh, it's largely speaking hosted in the North Sea because the North Sea is shallow and a little bit in the Irish Sea and a bit off the Scots coast. Um, but for us to, uh, to go to the other areas that we want to go, so to the southwest and to, to, to northern and western Scotland, it's deep water. So that's why we need floating platforms. So that's the reason that we're interested in going out there. The, the, other, um, um, uh, the other point about this is that, um, so these are the only two locations we go. The other point about this is there is a lot of energy out there. So to give you a sense of it, when Britain is operating, uh, the grid is at full demand, uh, it's around about 43 gigawatts worth of power. That, that sort of figure, you know, it sort of varies a bit, but that's maximum demand. Um, in the Celtic Sea, which is the waters between uh, Cornwall, Wales, and Southern Ireland, there's somewhere between 150 and 250 gigawatts worth of power. So that's four to five times um, Britain's requirement. And it'll be the same, if not more, of uh, Western and Northern Scotland. So there are huge amounts of power out there. There are big challenges for us to bring the power ashore uh, on grid uh, and on the technologies. Um, I'm convinced we can do it. So this isn't gonna be happened overnight, but equally, as we uh, transition to a um, post-fossil fuel world, um, then renewables is, you know, is going to be top dead center in the answers and the amounts of power out there. I mean, you can do things offshore at scale 
and at speed in a way that you can't do on shore. Yeah, and I think the way you, you've hit the nail on the head over the world that we're all in is changing both from where the energy is coming from, but actually where the energy is going. So when mm -hmm. we're driving around in our electric vehicles, arguably heating up our electric houses or the industrial version thereof, you know, we need power to do that um, and electricity to do that. So having the, the facility to scale up. And I think that is the point. I think what, what we're getting to with this is the, the floating piece. There, there's no, from what I can gather, assuming there's wind and there's, there's sea available, then there's, there's really no, um, there's no stopping this. I mean, is that fair? I mean, is that, I mean, are you, I mean, what, what about regulation or what about, you know, the ships, I guess, still need to go somewhere? I mean, how, how does that work with the, the environment? Um, yeah, it's, I don't think there'll be problems in the environment. When we've looked at the sea areas, uh, there's a lot of water out there. Um, there's the, the, the areas where we, so uh, we will take a relatively small amount of the sea areas. So, for example, the areas that I'm looking at is the Celtic Sea. As I say, that's the area between uh, Cornwall, uh, South Wales and Ireland. And in there, there's more than enough to do what we need to do unconstrained. If, once we put these... Um, farms in the water then and we will probably not be able to fish in them but they're relatively small compared to the fishing areas um, and as an ex-fishery uh, protection officer uh, during my naval time I think it's not, not necessarily a bad thing to have some sort of marine zones which are um, uh, you know are, um, are off limits for fishing uh, there are also a significant amount of economic jobs and de job economic development and jobs to go with this so there are a lot of people um, in the marine sector and in sort of poor coastal communities for whom I think uh, there will be work. If you've been to the north, uh, to the east of England uh, and the North Sea um, towns where conventional offshore winds have been working, it's a great economic success and a great job success. And these um, wind farms require 24-7 maintenance. So you know, there is an ongoing... Uh, jobs requirement throughout the life of the wind farm. So there's a fantastic opportunities, I think, for anybody with a STEM background, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and anybody, anybody with a marine background. Perfect. So I guess there's the initial, I guess, construction stroke commissioning phase of creating uh, the turbines there and the, the floating offshore um, wind farms, and then, of course, the maintenance for, for every day thereafter. Super. Um, okay. I mean, is there any other points of notes that that you've um, that you can think of? I mean, what what have we been doing? I mean, for, for me, it sounds like um, this is a very fast moving area. So I guess how would we measure the success of this, Steve? How do we how do we know we're doing the right thing? Yeah, I mean, I think we measure the success through through deployment. So um, at the moment, uh, we've been working very hard with the government to to make sure that we have the money. The revenue support to do this it's called uh, contracts for difference and what that um what we need is because these um new farms uh we're using new technologies um it's generally speaking more expensive at the start of a technological journey than at the end so um we're looking for support from the government in, co in contracts for difference so that essentially means the government will pay a premium to for the energy that we we deliver um, but in return of in return for that uh, we will aim to drive the cost of the energy down so we get to where 
conventional offshore offshore wind is. And conventional offshore wind doesn't require subsidies now. And we think we can do that quite quickly. So that's the first thing we need. We need government support. We need a pipeline of projects, um, pipeline of projects in the south. And the only two places, Scott, where we can do this are the southwest and Scotland. So we'll need a pipeline of projects in both locations. Um, okay. And then we'll need it, it we'll, we'll almost certainly need infrastructure investment in the two obvious areas of ports and the grid. Um, but with those, there are no world leaders in this sector. So uh, it's been, it's a new sector. Um, uh, and there are the areas where it's been deployed so far, Norway, west of Portugal. But, uh, but the biggest uh, array at the moment is the high wind array in Scotland. The next one is building out in Scotland as well. It's called the King Carden array. We're hoping to get four turbines down here where I work at WaveHub. Uh, but then the uh, the world is the limit, and the re the reason I say that is that um, in simple terms, as an oceanographer and a naval officer former, um, there's a lot more deep water out there than shallow. So, and there's a lot more power in the deep water. So, if we can get wind turbines out into that deep water, um, then this is a market which could be two, three, four, or even five times as big as the conventional offshore wind market. And the conventional offshore wind market is already probably the quickest growing renewable energy market in the world. So um, you can give, give you a sense of what this floating offshore wind market looks like. So there's huge scope for, not just for the UK, but assuming once we've refined the technology and we know the, you know, we all understand what works, then it can go and we can lead the world in, in putting these turbines there. Um, and I guess it's almost the converse. I understand at the moment, sometimes Britain um, buys electricity from the continent, from Europe or from France. It could well be that it's, it's the other way around for a change, which would be which would be good. Um, yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, that's for sure. I mean, I'd love to think that we could be in a position where actually we're exporting electricity. I mean, the other good thing as well, just if you think about it, um, one of the problems with wind is that it doesn't always blow. Um, <laughs> um, and so you don't always get the power. That's not the case if you start to have a wind portfolio, which is across a wide area. So it's very rare that the wind is not blowing in the North Sea or Scotland or the Southwest approaches. So if you've got um, turbines in those areas, then it, it makes your power much more um, reliable, shall I say. Yeah, it's spreading the risk. And, and to be honest, yeah. I never even contemplated, you probably detect my accent here, I never contemplated the idea it wouldn't be windy. <laughs> and so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but you'll be right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Steve, perfect. Thank you so much. What an incredible insight you've given us all today, which I really, really appreciate. Um, I guess let's see what the future holds. Um, and if, if your diary allows, and I haven't scared you off, we may well pick up um, some point in the development topics at a future date to, to see how the, the development of this is going, if, if you're interested. Yeah, yeah Scott, um, we're, in the, we're in the middle of uh, offshoring our um, site um, in a competitive process. So come and talk to us in about a year, and we'll tell you how we got on and then what we're doing to build out this sector in the Celtic Sea. Perfect. We, we will do that. And I think we'd be keen to learn because I think what tends to happen, especially in the public domain, I guess, is we hear about, um, you know, new projects coming online, but we don't actually hear what, what you know, the, the challenges and actually the, the positive stories that come out of that. And I think what you're going to do is incredible. Um, and I really hope I wish you all the success and I have no doubt you'll, you'll get it. Um, so that, that brings us to the end of another episode of the Engineer Ignition podcast. Thank you for taking the time to listen, and I do look forward to our next episode of our Experts and Leaders series in the very near future. Thank you again, Steve. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Engineering Ignition podcast. If you've made it this far, we take it that you enjoyed the show. 
In return, we'd love it if you'd leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Subscribe while you're there and we'll catch you for the next episode.